Doug Scheiding of Rogue Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. Welcome to episode number nine, nine, 99, baseball and barbecue. Wow. 99. I'm here with my incredible co-host, Jeff Cohen. And I'm here with my incredible co-host, Lenny Riman. And thank you, Jeff. 99. What do you think of when you hear number 99? I think if it was age, I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you if any fans of the TV show Get Smart is out there, uh, uh, Agent 99, 99, yes, Barbara Feldman. <laughs> that that's true. That's right. It's it, incredible. We are at 99. And you know what? The show that we have, this show, really you would think would be episode 100 because that is how big this one is. I I think. I mean, Jeff, well, we have a Hall of Famer. Yes, we do. And how many, how, okay, we have a Hall of Famer, so I got a question for you. Can you tell me, our Hall of Fame guest, how many RBIs did he uh, have in his career? Uh, that would be zero. How many, oh, so he must be a pitcher. How many wins and losses? That would be zero. Wow. Home runs? Again, zero. By now, I think you've noticed that there's, <laughs> there's a theme here. The Hall of Famer is actually Steve Reichlin, who is in the, barbecue hall of fame <laughs> that is right yes but he is a hall of famer I, i'm gonna confess you you know on this show we're always uh, actually i'm the one who's always confessing <laughs> I, i've confessed once or twice yeah i don't know why we've had on so many people that are you know you could consider celebrities um you know, ex-players and people just, I mean, just the, the people. Wait a second. On. Yeah. Now that I think about it, is this now our second Hall of Fame? Because didn't Meathead get into the Hall of Fame? Yes, he did. Oh, so this is. Yes. Number two. This is our second Hall of Famer. Um, <laughs> we're still, by the way, we're still working on a baseball Hall of Famer. So, you know, we're working on that. <laughs> I was actually, uh, I'm going to confess, I was nervous. I was nervous at, I mean. I think you'll hear the interview in the beginning. You could, you could, you could tell a little bit. I don't know why. I just—it's not like he did or said anything to make me nervous. But I just—I think I'm just—I really appreciate what he has done in the world of barbecue. He's a prolific author. 
I mean, my uh, bookcase uh, is filled with many of his books. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he has numerous shows on PBS. So I just, I, I don't know. I was a little nervous. And, and we also have another author on the show today as well. Yes. Did he make you nervous? No, he didn't. But he was a very interesting <laughs> guest. His name is Bill Nolan. He yes. wrote a book called Working a Perfect Game, Conversations with Umpires. Now, we all know umpires are under fire a lot these days. But really, if you listen to the interview, read the book, and it's, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can. I mean, nobody wants to, you know, have a bad, bad game. And, and they, their way of, of working a perfect game is when they don't get noticed. Right. And he talks about that in the interview. Yes. I mean, he talks about so many things. I never thought that I would find a book on umpires and a conversation about them so fascinating. Yeah. And Bill Nolan was a really a perfect guest to, to, to talk about his book, Perfect, The Perfect Game, but really great. Uh, enjoyed it very much. So two really great guests on episode 99. Not 100, 99. And I just want to remind everybody, if they want to reach the show, they can give us a call at 516-855-8214. Our email is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. We have the Twitter is at Baseball and BBQ. YouTube, same thing, Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Our website is www baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And, and Len, what do, we, what do we want people to do? Rate and review us. Exactly. Please, people. We're doing the heavy lifting. Rate us and review us. Let us know you're out there. We know you're out there. It just, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, listen, how many, how many podcasts are you rating and reviewing? But, you know, I, I do. We want to. We're asking. Yeah, you, do you rate and review podcasts? I do. Yes, I do. Okay, good, good. Because I don't know, you know, if a lot of people do. But anyway, let's go right now to Stephen Reichlin. Our guest is a five-time James Beard Award-winning cookbook author, a 2015 Barbecue Hall of Fame inductee, and has created and hosted numerous television cooking shows, teaches in-person barbecue classes, writes novels, and travels the world gathering ideas and recipes for his numerous cookbooks, one of which is Planet Barbecue, which includes a recipe for grilled ice cream, which yours truly has tried, mm, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. (laughs) His latest cookbook takes vegetables and elevates them from a last-minute side dish which gets thrown on the grill at the end into the entrees and sides that can satisfy even the most voracious carnivore. Wonderful writing, incredible recipes, and beautiful photos are guaranteed to make this a book you will reference again and again. We are so fortunate and honored to welcome Stephen Reichlin to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Stephen. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Stephen, thank you for writing this book because, you know, I guess just like everybody else, authors, you now you, you, you have to promote it, you know, and, and, and you're, that, that is special to us because you, you're, you've come on our show. But you know what? This book is, is just fantastic. It really, 
It's great. So <laughs> show it. Show yeah. it to everybody. There you, there go. you so, go. Okay. There we go. <laughs> there you go. Good. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Stephen. I we, we get a lot of barbecue books, and this this is the one book my wife saw this book, grabbed it, and I had to like you know, get it out of her hands. She said, this is one she's really going to use. So you scored in this house. Well, I scored in my house too. I don't know where your wife is on the uh, vegetarian's uh, scale, but my daughter's a vegetarian. My cousin's a vegetarian. My wife is like hanging by a thread. So I wrote this in self-defense as much as anything else. Well, Stephen, I had that also. My, my son was a vegetarian at one point. And I didn't have this book, and I wasn't creative with, with my cooking. So my, my grill, which I used basically for meat, was alone and covered for quite, quite some time. I wish I had this book because, you know, I, I would have been, uh, the house would have been, uh, we would have eaten a lot better. But had a somebody who is, look, you, you are barbecue, okay, however, you know, you, you want to say it. How do you deal with that? I guess I guess you do all your cooking and your shows, so when you get home, there's no meat. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, that is that is a piece of it. I certainly uh, express my inner carnivore a lot more in my shows in Barbecue University than I do at home. But uh, happily, I have other family members who are ardent carnivores. So, you know, I think our principle about meat is eat less meat, but eat better meat. And we certainly eat extraordinary meat. And, you know, like my old mentor, Julia Child used to say, all things in moderation. Yeah. And you actually are a big uh, seafood fan, right? Being, uh, you grew up in Maryland. so you... I am. And I'm speaking to you from Martha's Vineyard and I live the rest of the year in Miami. So yeah, seafood's a big deal. But, you know, even from my first, my earliest barbecue book, The Barbecue Bible, all of my books have disproportionately large vegetable, grilled vegetable chapters. Why? Because A, I love grilled vegetables. B, when you travel the world's barbecue trail, you know, they are a, a very indelible part of many grilled cultures. I mean, take a place like India, 300 million vegetarians, you know, with an incredible grill culture. So they almost have more vegetarians in that country than we have people in our country. How long did you have the idea for this book? You know, if you if I think about barbecuing, grilling, mm -hmm. sauce and rubs and marinades, obviously about the condiments and flavorings for barbecue. And then uh, I did how to grill because, you know, guys never, don't like to ask questions, but I figured a thousand step-by-step -step color photographs. So I wrote two very meat-centric books along the way. One was called Best Ribs Ever. And the most recent one was The Brisket Chronicles. Right. So I felt like, you know, it's time. I've never really focused my attention and my creativity solely on the plant kingdom. And it seemed like America was heading in that direction already. My family was heading in that direction. So I guess I probably, I, I probably submitted the proposal maybe three years ago. It took me a year and a half to write the book, you know, another year for it to come out. So here we are. Some of these recipes in this book looks absolutely fantastic. It, like you said, you don't have to be a meat eater to enjoy a great barbecue meal here. And one thing that, that caught my eye, I got to tell you, is a cedar plank eggplant parmesan. Yeah. So I am definitely going to try to make that on, on my grill. 
But uh, this looks absolutely good because I love uh, eggplant, eggplant parmesan. Sure. And to make this on the grill, it's, it, it looks absolutely fantastic. How'd you come up with that recipe? Well, you know, um, I mean, eggplant is one of the ultimate vegetables for grilling. And you can grill it in the embers and char the skin, which makes it very use, a useful vegetable for somebody who's an absolute klutz at the grill. Because not only can you burn it, you should. And then you scrape out the flesh and mix it with garlic and olive oil and lemon juice, and it becomes baba ganoush. Uh, you can slice the eggplant, uh, grill the sliced eggplant. But I guess really, you know, uh, eggplant parmesan, it's one of my wife's favorite dishes, but it's bre- bad, breaded. Typically, it's deep fried. It's not the healthiest dish in the world. So I thought, you know, well, what if we grill the eggplant? We'll have all the same amazing flavor. What if we smoke the tomato sauce? Because I love a theme. Uh, what if we assemble the thing, not in the oven, but on the grill on a charred cedar plank? And that's kind of how it came to be. You know, I won't say this is a book of ersatz dishes, but I will say that when you view many dishes through a grilled and, and, and plant food prism, you come up with some very interesting uh, recipes. Like another one that I really like, it's the grilled vegetable paella. Well, traditional paella in Spain would be made with, with uh, snails and rabbit. I mean, that's the original paella. But in thinking about how to, do, but they do cook a paella on a wood fire traditionally. So sort of thinking about deconstructing that, well, instead of sautéing the vegetables like they do in Spain, how about if you grilled them? You know, they'd have so much more flavor and crunch and color. You still cook the paella uh, over wood fire. And it, you know, it just seemed like a fantastic, fantastic way to go. One dish that did not make it into this book, but is on the new series, the Project Fire Season 3 TV series, is a, a grilled raclette. Now, raclette, you know, is a traditional Swiss dish. It's cooked in front of a fireplace. You melt this cheese called raclette in front of the fire, and you scrape the melted cheese over boiled potatoes, over other vegetables, over ham. And so Reichland thinking about this, okay, well, grilled (laughs) cheese, I'm, I'm down with that, but let's grill the potatoes, you know? Let's brush thin slices of ham with oil, grill those so that they turn into like ham flavored potato chips. Hell, let's even grill the pickles, why not? <laughs> and so when you watch that, I don't think it's aired yet. We're just about five, four or five weeks into the series. But when you watch that, it's a really fun dish. Steve and I, you, if you remember the, the old Batman episode, well, not, not the TV show, but the movie, the Joker says, he's got the neatest toys, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I, I thought of that. I, I watched your show but this was another season, and you had this mini smoker. It like uh, I can't remember. It like a little tube, and it 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 put the smoke in. It was oh, very a smoking cool. gun. Yeah, a smoking yeah, gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the the paella you're talking about. So I was watching. I happened to see that show this weekend. I saw you making the paella, but as you're making it, you were using this grill. It has like it. it it's like almost like swing. Like swing yeah. grates. Yeah, and, it's, it, what is that it's, called? It's called a kudu, K-U-D-U. Uh, it's a South African-inspired wood-burning grill. I love grilling over wood. Okay, forget the charcoal versus gas debate. For me, it's all about wood. And the beauty of this thing is typically wood-burning grills start at two or $3,000, and they can go up to $28,000. This is a wood-burning grill. You're all in for, I think, under $400 or under $300. Wow. But what you're talking about is so you've got your fire pan, and then you've got a series of 
hoops that swing in and out. One of them has a grow right. grate on it. One of them can accommodate a pan. Right. Um, the paella pan. You yeah, were, the paella you, pan. So, right. um, so that's, that's pretty cool. Pretty yeah. cool. Grill. Yeah. When you, you have, obviously the show, your, your show has sponsors, the different grills. And I always wonder like, how are you deciding which grill you're going to use? And I know obviously some grills are more specific to certain meats sure. or whatever, but you use the, uh, the drum smoker for one. What was it? You it pit barrel a, cooker. Yeah. It was a yeah. steak. And, and you use that one, which is interesting because that one is really promoted more as a, as a smoker, mm. you know, a hanging smoker. Mm. Mm. And although you can use it as, as the grill, they do say with the grate on top, and that's exactly how you used it. It was interesting to see it used like that. And I would imagine that that pit barrel cooker probably is happy with the fact that you did use it like that because it... It gives you a, a new way to use it. Yeah, I'm, you know, I love to push the envelope and I love to, uh, certainly we all start, we learn the basics. We use the grills the way they're supposed to be used. But then I love taking them to the next level. And one technique I use a lot in How to Grill Vegetables, the new book and also in the new show, I call cavemanning or grilling in the embers where you get rid of the grill grate and you actually lay the food right on the embers. It's a spectacular way to cook onions, to cook eggplant to cook bell peppers uh, you can do corn in the embers and you get a surface charring and a kind of micro smoking that is utterly unique i mean it's very different than conventional grilling on a grate it's very different than traditional smoking so the book is called how to grill vegetables by stephen Racklin, the new bible for barbecuing vegetables over live fire and Stephen, what, what i really like about your book in the beginning it really doesn't matter what type of grill you're using could you give a as a, a guide, actually, of to select your grill and select your, your fuel. So you can do this under a charcoal grill, a wood-burning grill, a drum grill, a Komodo grill. So this is that's, that's terrific. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm far be it for me to assume, but to, to make a demand that people buy a certain grill or assume that people have a certain grill. You know, it's really, uh, I, you know, I guess I see myself as an educator, I'm a, what I am is I'm a frustrated college professor, okay? I have a degree in French literature, which is a decidedly odd uh, background uh, for a guy that writes about barbecue. But I, uh, I love teaching. And that's what I try and do in my books, try and do in my TV shows. So in a Reichland book, the first chapter, the first section will always be an exhaustive walking you through the process how to buy the grill, how to fuel it, how to light it, five techniques of live fire cooking, et cetera, et cetera. Well, your shows are always on PBS, PBS. right? Yeah, public television. They're always, yeah. right. Do you ever get offers for, I don't know if they're on any other networks. I've never seen them on anything no, else. we're strict, strictly on PBS. Do you yeah. ever get? Sure, but, you know, and I have done shows P, for the U.S., I like PBS because it's an educational channel right. and that's real, and it's a non-commercial channel and that's really who I Yeah, am. that's what I thought. That, that, yeah. I was going to say that because that seems to be PBS is kind of that educational kind of yeah. thing, which you, are, which you said you like to do. Yeah. Now, I've done, I do a series of, um, of TV shows in French in Quebec. And those are more commercial. And then I did a series in Italy, and that also right. was more commercial. But I was concentrating so hard on getting the language right that I didn't really pay attention to everything else. 
you know, I heard you, yeah, I heard you doing, a, a, t- speaking to someone and you were saying how you were so focused on the language that it kind of, it almost relaxed you with the cooking stuff. Or- totally. I'm much, I'm much better on television in French. I'm much more natural in French than I am in English. Cause you know, I, I'm a, I started this business as a writer and I, I think like a writer and I speak like a writer and I make television like a writer. And that is not, how you should make television with television, you know, it's, it's really, you, you don't think, but I, I find myself editing myself as I speak, which is a very, I mean, less now, but that was a very tough habit to break. And, you know, it still comes back. Stephen, when the shows, when, when I'm watching the shows and all of a sudden it's dark, it's, that's a long day. I'm assuming when, when you're standing there in the dark. Yeah, they're long days. Typically I would say my day starts about five, five, five thirty in the morning and finishes up nine or 10 at night. It's a long day, you know, and I also, I, I like to be the first guy on the set and I like to, to kind of be, be there through the, uh, for, through the duration. What people may not realize is that you, it's not just barbecue books that you write. You also write novels and you also, uh, there's one I saw, which I think is kind of an oxymoron because it's, if I'm using the right word, it's a healthy Jewish cooking. Jewish cooking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, but it was healthy Jewish cooking, I yeah. think, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, to me, Jewish cooking is, you know. To the um, antithesis. Yeah, well, that, that was a fun book to write. You know, I had to bring that book out again. That's 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 been gone for a while. I'm, that's my takeaway. One of my many takeaways from this show is I'm going to bring that book out again. Was, uh, See, there but, you go. Wait, we but there's kind of a back, there's a backstory to that. So for many years, I was the restaurant critic for Boston Magazine, and I developed a cholesterol problem. This was pre-Lipitor. So I kind of created a style of cooking for myself that emphasized flavor and minimized fat, high-flavor, low-fat cooking. And I actually wrote eight books on that subject. And one of those was healthy Jewish cooking, where I really tried to take some of the fat and unhealthy elements out of, uh, out of Jewish food. And when you take that fat away, a certain amount of fat makes food taste delicious, certainly. But a, when you use too much fat, it sort of blurs the finesse and the subtlety and the nuance in food. It's kind of, I liken it to, to kind of smearing Vaseline on the, the lens of a camera. You know, it gives you a pretty soft image, but but it really sort of blurs some of the interesting details. You know, Stephen, looking, th- looking through the book, again, it's called How to Grill Vegetables, but it's really not just vegetables. I mean, I'm looking at the table of content. You have bread, pizza, quesadillas. By the way, I'm going to have Len cook, uh, make me the Reichland margarita pizza because that yeah. looks... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's I don't know why I have to make it for him. But it's, okay. it's, your, it's your own special recipe, I, I suppose, right? It's, yeah. it's a sig- yeah. your signature dish. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, that's a... Well, drinks are a big part of it. I, don't, I didn't put drinks in, uh, in this book because there was only so much room. I mean... It's all I could do to sneak in a dessert chapter. But uh, yeah, it's really about plant foods. So uh, there's a chapter on grilled eggs, which enabled me to actually bridge six centuries in a dish. I had first read it when I was studying medieval cooking in Europe on a Watson Foundation Fellowship grant. And there's a this guy named Taillevon, Windslicer was his, uh, that's what that means in uh, English. And he was the first celebrity chef. Actually, he was probably the second celebrity chef because there was a Roman who named the Pisius who was probably the first one. But anyway, so Taillevon, he had a dish where he said, you know, take eggs, poke holes in the top and the bottom, blow out the egg mixture, beat it up, add flavorings, 
put it back in the put them back in the eggs, put the eggs on skewers, and then grill them. And I thought, right, yeah, like that's really possible. Well, a few years ago, I was in Cambodia working on Planet Barbecue, my book Planet Barbecue, and I saw in multiple roadside stands grilled eggs, whole eggs on a skewer, the shells blackened with charcoal. And so I thought, wow, egg chapter, man, because I love I love smoked eggs. When I make deviled eggs, I smoke them. I, so this seemed like, a, you know, a very good opportunity to, 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 to sort of bridge the dish I've read about in the past with the one still made today. I'm not going to tell you the secret. There is a secret to making them, to keeping them from uh, oozing all over and making a mess, but you'll have to read the book to find okay. out. Fair enough. You know, one, one of the things I, I, when I grill corn on, on, on the grill, uh, that's one of the things that actually comes out pretty good, uh, but it's mm-hmm. plain. Looking at your uh, recipe here for grilled corn with, with wasabi, butter, and sesame, I'm mm-hmm. definitely going to try that. Yeah. Yeah, that's grilled corn. Is a, a, I love grilled corn. It's the best way to cook it. But in a funny way, it's like a blank canvas. So I go full bore Baltimore with Old Bay seasoning and brown butter. I go Asian with uh, so, soy sauce and wasabi. I think there's an Italian version of Mexican street corn with uh, sage butter and, um, and uh, pecorino romano cheese. It's fun. You know, I don't know. These ideas just keep coming to me. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I wish I had a a brilliant understanding of the real estate market or the stock market. But uh, I guess my, you know, what comes to me are ideas of, uh, of how, how to put ingredients together and grill. If you grill corn in the husk, does that, does the husk add? Okay. Do not grill it in the husk. It doesn't. Only add with one exception. If you okay. grill corn in the husk, in effect, what you are doing is steaming it. Okay. I I don't know. Is this an X-rated audience or what? Uh, I would liken that to an intimate act with a protective membrane. You know, better. If you okay. But there is one exception to that rule, and as if you, it's it's our old friend caveman grilling. If you lay the corn in his husk on the embers, and you actually char, you burn away the uh, the husk and the corn silk, just exposing the kernels. Well, that is that's totally amazing, and that's a dish of a different complexion yeah you know i just want a, a little side note i've seen uh, people grill right right on the embers actually these were uh len and i were, were, were scout leaders and i saw these these boy scouts grill right open fire right on the embers and they did a pretty good job i tell you that oh yeah i'll tell you if you get a good thick porterhouse steak or t-bone steak and you grill it on the embers you know that is a, a that is a thing of wonder steve i know that time is limited i, I just want to make sure i get all these these questions when you are i know this is nothing to do with your books or whatever but i have to ask you and i we've asked any any person that we have on that writes cookbooks and you know is considered a chef right when you're okay okay well you you know what you're known for your cooking right is there added pressure when you're home right it you always have to what happens if the food do you ever burn anything okay (laughs) Yeah, sure. I, I burn, I undercook, <laughs> I overcook. Uh, but uh, we eat pretty simply at home. You know, I have a very hot palate, very fiery palate. Uh, my wife doesn't. So that sort of eliminates a, a large number of dishes. But we eat pretty healthily. I mean, we'll grill, you know, we will grill a steak. We'll get a really good steak, uh, mm-hmm. Wagyu beef. Uh, and one New York strip, We'll last it. We'll split it for dinner and have leftovers for lunch. So, I mean, that's 
that's kind of where we are. A little meat, better meat uses a condiment, a lot of vegetables. That's, that's our, really our way of eating. And this book does have a lot of it. Any vegetable you can think of, it's in this book. I mean, smoked carrots, bok choy, leeks. This is just, just fantastic. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are going to get a lot of use out of this book because it sounds absolutely delicious and it should be on everybody's library who uses barbecue. You bet. Thank you. So, guys, we, uh, it's barbecue and baseball. We didn't talk baseball one bit. Well, let's do but- it. Okay, but I do want to go on the record as having grown up an Orioles fan because I grew up in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And you know that uh, Brooks Robinson now uh, has a uh, a pit beef place at uh, Camden Yard Stadium. Oh, does he? Yeah, so uh, he's a baseballer that went into barbecue. And I'm a Sox fan myself because, you know, we live in uh, part of the year in uh, Massachusetts. But if you go on my website, which is barbecuebible.com, last week we had a very interesting blog uh, written by Larry Olmsted, a uh, writer for Forbes.com, who has just come out with a book called Fan. And it's the story of how sports and fandom uh, shape our, natural per- our national personality and how they can make us a better nation. Definitely check you know, that out. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting connection. I, I thought Baltimore had, Boog Powell had a barbecue uh, operation. Boog Powell, wait, wait, wait. Boog Powell, I, wait, Boog Powell or Brooks Robinson? Boog I think Powell. it was Boog, Boog Powell. Boog Powell. Boog, I'm but, so sorry. But we don't, we don't like to disagree with our guests. <laughs> nah, I'm so sorry. If you that say was, Brooks you know, Robinson. As, as I was saying that, I was this little <laughs> voice in my head was saying, you sure you got that right? Speaking I of actually talk, a couple of players. I interviewed him a couple uh, couple months ago about that, and uh, it was pretty cool. Oh, really? A couple yeah. of ball players do have, uh, you know, big in barbecue. We, we interviewed Greg Wolzinski, yep. who has a barbecue stand down in Citizens Bank Park in, in Philadelphia. Yep, yep. Right, Bulls Barbecue. Well, definite, definite connection. Yeah. I, I was actually going to introduce you, and I was going to say a Hall of Famer who has never, you know, you won't find on any, you know, sports, <laughs> you know, no hits, no RBIs, whatever. But, but I thought, you know, well, <laughs> we, we will hold the humor, you know, or the attempted humor. <laughs> so, so but, yeah, definitely check out barbecuebible.com. I'm looking right now, and it's just, it looks like a great, great website. A lot of recipes, all your books, and the uh, article you just mentioned about the sports and fans. That, that's great. Stephen, we thank you very much for being with us, and uh, we wish you so much luck with this book. Stephen Reichlin, How to Grill Vegetables. If I didn't have it already, I would tell my kids to buy it for me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you Thanks, so much, guys. Hey, thank you very much. You. We appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. And thank you, Stephen Reichlin, for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. He's a Hall of Famer, Len. Hall of Famer. And there's so many things from that interview that I loved. One of the things, I love how he says, he, he says, grilled racklet. As you know, like, he, he's giving us a <laughs> lot of credit when he says, as you know. Okay, another confession. I had no clue what grilled racklet was, but I like that he felt that we did. So that was very nice. And the other thing is that he, I think if he does bring back his Jewish cooking, Jewish cooking cookbook, I think that we had something to do with that. That seems to be what he was saying. 
Yes, maybe we get a little credit there. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was great. Jeff? Yes? I know that you haven't had one lately. Every time I think you are going to have one, and I give you the, uh, the cue for it, you say, well, it's not a rant, but I think that you have a baseball rant. Yes, Len, I, I do. Yay! <laughs> Len, you texted me a, a snippet, a review of our last show, and I don't know who this is oh, from. Oh, okay. I have no I'm idea glad, who this is I'm from. i you don't know. <laughs> and it says, Len, talking about the, the podcast from the guy with Cleveland, he sounds like a ball of energy, which, which he is. I mean, yeah. Yes. My general observation of this episode is simply this. You guys are stuck in baseball like when we grew up, and apparently it's the only way it's supposed to be played forever. Stop being old and evolve. Quite maddening to listen to all you old coots reminiscent of the old days. I'm an old coot because I don't like players striking out 15 times or more a game. I'm an old coot because why? Because fundamentals are lacking in all of baseball. Why? Because the base running is atrocious. Why? Because people are on their devices and they can't watch a baseball game. Why? Because I despise putting the runner at second base in extra innings. Sure, everybody in baseball likes it. The owners like it. They aren't selling beer after the seventh inning. The managers are afraid to use pitchers. The players want to go home earlier. It's only the paying public which despises these stupid rules. Why? Because I, I buy a ticket to a game only to find out they cut off 22% of it to make it a seven-inning game. Seven-inning split doubleheaders are bullcrap, and you know it. I'm an old coot because after 100 pitchers, the, start, the starter is taken out of the game due to a predetermined arbitrary number. Why? Because of a, there's a seventh inning pitcher and an eighth inning pitcher and a, then a closer. If that makes me a coot, you know, then I will wear that as a badge of honor. Well, then, Jeff, first of all, you always want you're always we are always asking for if you want to contact the show. Somebody contacted the show, gave their opinion. I found it funny. I, 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 I laughed and I think maybe we're, we need to put your food in a blender because you might, you are an old coot, but oh, that's okay. But you know what? The way baseball play today, we're not evolving. We're evolving. I think, yeah, well, I, I understand. I understand what you're saying. There's so many ways we could go with that. What? Do you like uh, having players uh, strike out 15 times a game? No. Of course do you not. like uh, the, the player, on, the, the runner on second place? No, I, I do not like that at all. Do you like I having these not. split, split double headers where you're paying a full price for seven in games? No, no. Not no. If I wouldn't have an issue if I was a paying customer, if it was a if it was a seven inning doubleheader, you know, seven inning each game, and I had pay one admission. They do it and they're doing that too, which right. That but that was all there. due to the COVID rules. What I want guess what? You know, a split doublehead, they're there all day anyway. Why right. why do they have to make it two games uh, two price games, you know? I know. So you had a situation, Jeff. You went to the you you went to the Yankee uh, Met Sunday night game, right? Yes. Okay. And it was supposed to be a nine inning game, right? Now I I agree. I have a big problem with the fact that because of we've had atrocious weather, so they made it a, it a day night doubleheader, but they made it a split to admission. So the people that went to the first game, they had to leave the stadium. You had to come in. Which, by the way, they didn't even give really enough time no, between they games, right? No, they didn't. But when you bought your ticket, you bought your ticket 
thinking you were getting at least a nine-inning game. Yeah, it was not. It was not scheduled right. as a doubleheader. Right. So now but you had a seven-inning game. Due to rain out, they had to make it a doubleheader, and I understand why. And I know they had to do the split doubleheader because of TV rights. They were, the national mm-hmm. TV game was that night, and they couldn't. I, I get that. I mean, but still, you don't need to have a seven-inning game no, if you're going to charge two separate admissions, two nine-inning games. There's no reason for that. Right. I I understand that. I I understand that. But again, we're going to go to rules and and let's and not go to rules. Gonna... But but has the game evolved or devolved? I mean, the base running is atrocious, terrible. It's fundamentals. Where are the fundamentals? Guys can't put down a, a bunt anymore. Right. No bunting is. I, I mean, went to the game on Sunday night where Michael Conforto was up at bat. They hit in the whole right left side of the field. And he's batting 200. You want to raise your batting average? Put down a bunt. Okay. Rant that over. is. But you know what, though? I want to thank the person that sent us that message because it got your blood boiling. <laughs> and, and, you know, but again, it's baseball. We said it on our last episode. We love it. We love to argue about it. A lot of these changes we don't like, but some people do like them. I, I don't know. What do you think? In, in I, I kind of equate putting a runner at second base in the 10th inning to the shootout in hockey. But but the shootout in hockey, don't they play an extra period? And if nobody scores in that period, then yes. they go to it? Yes, they play five minutes. Yes. Right. But you so know what? I would, those extra innings, you know, there was a, those long extra inning games. They're, they're, first of all, they're very rare. They are very rare. But they're memorable. They're very yeah. memorable. You know, who can forget the 4th of July when the Mets were at the Braves and, and their, their relief pitching, like the 13th inning, hit the home run to tie the game. Rick Camp hit the home run. It goes 19 innings. Mets finally win. It's 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning, and then they're shooting fireworks off. You don't forget that. So, Jeff, <laughs> our next guest is Bill Nolan. Tell us the book he wrote and then tell us are we safe or are we out or do we need to go to an instant replay to decide? <laughs> you tell us. It's called Working a Perfect Game, Conversations with Umpires by Bill Nolan. And it's really, it's, umpires are really underappreciated. I mean, we know they make, look, they all make bad calls. It happens. They're human. But, you know, this book is really telling what they go through to be major. There's only 72 of them. He talks about the replay center. He talks about their struggles going getting to him to be a major league umpire fascinating stories so yeah this yeah. is going to be a really good listen and if you, really an underappreciated aspect of baseball they make good money once they're major league umpires but the the path to get there if if they even get there is expensive they are not making anything and you know even when they become umpires they have to play well he talks about their travel. He talks about how they're they're in a city for you know three games and then they leave and they're you know, always us, traveling. Us as viewers, we see if the ball is outside and it's called a strike. We we see right. that automatically. They they review their own calls. They review them and they see a video after mm-hmm. the game. Right. So they know when they're uh, you know made a mistake. But we and we the public you know we're screaming and haunting you know of course this guy stinks. Right. And it's very easy for us to watch and play, you know, exactly. oh, we saw, you know, we have the replay and all that. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I always equate that to watching a game show. You know, when the person's standing there and, and they're being asked the questions and, and you're at home and you could just relax and, 
and say, oh, yeah, I knew that answer. Oh, I can't believe they didn't get that. In the heat of the moment, it's not even the heat of the moment. At that second, to see that quick, uh, just matter, just that in that moment to make that call. Yeah, they make mistakes. But do we want all of it to be replay? No. We don't want it to become a video game. Right. And with that, here's our conversation with Bill Nolan. We often marvel at baseball book authors and their ability, just when you thought there was nothing left to write about, to come up with topics and make them incredibly interesting. In Working a Perfect Game, Bill Nolan has given a voice to a small group who, if they do their jobs right, are almost invisible. In this wonderful book, we learn how very difficult it is to become a Major League Baseball umpire and tons of other things about this small fraternity that we never knew. It is a fascinating look at the men who make sure the game played between the lines remains honest and fair. We are thrilled to welcome Bill Nolan, author of Working a Perfect Game to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Bill, th- thanks for joining us. First question, what got you interested into writing a book about uh, umpires? And by the way, it's not really a, a narrative. It's, it's You have conversations with umpires, correct? Yeah. yeah. I didn't try to sort of do an academic study of what umpires do, but I tried to bring out the story by talking with them. And so a lot of it was just conversation, but then transcription, which is not the most exciting thing to do. <laughs> I I mean, umpires were kind of invisible to me in some sense. I mean, in the uh, days not that long ago before replay, you know, you used to see some really good arguments occasionally. And, you know, they'd be center stage for a few minutes. But then they just, it wasn't something I focused on that much. And the first umpires I think I got to know was when I helped host a Sabre convention in the Boston area back in 2002, we put on a panel that I helped run and had a couple of umpires on there and people that worked with umpires. But then I, I kind of drifted out of my consciousness again. And I, I go to a lot of games. I read a couple of other books on umpires and I don't really know what it was that got me onto this particular attack about five years ago, but sometime around the year 2013, 2014, I, I started on it. Uh, there's a guy named Larry Gerlach who's been kind of a mentor to me in this area. And he'd written a book about umpires. He he's, was a very active Sabre member. I talked to him. We, we ended up doing a book together for Sabre called The Sabre Book of Umpires and Umpiring. And in the course of that, I talked my way into the umpire's room at Fenway Park, <laughs> asked him if I could just sit down and ask him a few questions about what it was like. And then I transcribed the conversation. And the more I talked to them, the more interested I got in these guys that kind of come out of the ground, walk out onto the field. They're there throughout the whole game. Maybe they're involved in a little controversy. Maybe not. They'd rather not. Uh, and then they go back into the ground and they disappear again. And yet, if you go to a game about an hour before the game, that's when they show up. They don't come in wearing their uniforms. They, they don't have a face mask on and so forth. Nobody knows they're there. They just walk in and almost nobody ever recognizes them, and which is also the way they want it. They do not want to be center stage. They want to do their job. Controversy is not good. They just want to have the game run and run smoothly. 
And that's what they call a perfect game, a game where there's no controversy, not a game where the pitcher gets 27 batters in a row. I mean, that'd be even more exciting, of course. Sure. I'll yeah. have their perfect game or no hitter stories. But a perfect game to them is a game without controversy, a game they feel good about afterwards. And let me just ramble on just a little bit more with one, <laughs> one thing. I found in talking to them that by the time they get to this level, I mean, they've been working at it for years and years, average of eight to 10 years. And by the time they get to this level, they're their biggest critics. They will have plays that they will make the correct call. Maybe replay, maybe it goes to replay. They're upheld on the replay, but they know they could have made a better call if they'd been five feet further down the first baseline. They might have been in a better position to make that call. And they'll beat themselves up over it. They'll lose sleep. Maybe not a whole night's sleep, but, you know, they lose a little sleep over worrying about this. After they've already got tenure, they've already been in the game 10 years, 12 years, and so forth. But they know they could have done a better job. And that really impressed me, to hear them care that much about their work. Bill, the one thing is very clear after this. So many of these interviews is how difficult it is to become a major league baseball umpire. I, I mean, it's, it, you almost think it's, it's almost more difficult to become an umpire than it is to become a player because it's, the, the competition is fierce. And, and these guys, they go to these, these umpiring schools, which there's a few that are, are very well known. They pay to go. If they don't get what they want uh, or you know, get picked, some of them go again. Mm-hmm. And there's a very small group of these guys. What do you think's the main thing that keeps these guys going that they till they get to the level of major leagues? Well, not all of them make it, of course. Uh, I mean, there's 76 major league umpires at any given time. It's a good paying job if you get there, but you've got to go through years and years of poor pay, uh, working in single A, double A, trying to work your way up, being evaluated and graded by supervisors and umpire observers at every step along the way. Every game they work, they can get a grade on it. And only the ones that really succeed at school and then graduate from the school get recommended, hired by a league, and then work their way up. It can really take eight or nine years. And they have to wait for an opening. There's just so many openings. There's 76 slots now. It expanded a little bit with replay. But there has to be an opening. Somebody has to retire or or you know, be seriously injured or whatever to uh, ha- have an opening. There's a couple of guys I talked to that put in six or seven years and saw no openings coming up. They couldn't hack it any longer, and they, they just stopped. They, they went into other professions, real estate, and one guy in particular I'm thinking of, because he just, he just had a family, and he couldn't keep doing it any longer. But they, uh, you know, once they get there, I, I think there's an inner pride and a determination that carries them. Once you put in three or four years, maybe, you know, you think, well, maybe only another three or four more years. And, you know, you don't want to give up when you're that far down the road. I mean, some of these guys that they work, uh, I mean, Chris Cuccioni in particular worked something like 1,300 major league games before he was officially hired as a major league umpire. Essentially an apprenticeship. He was a call-up umpire. And they would call up if an umpire went on vacation or had a family issue to deal with, or was injured. They sort of have concussions and other other injuries that they suffer. 
uh, and they have these guys come and take their spot and get their feet wet. He worked 1,300 games. That's like 10 years worth of 130 games a year. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I want to talk to you about the role of, of role of umpires soon. But getting back to their struggles in the minor leagues, they have, they have their, their own car. They have to go from town to town. They're not put up by any families. They 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 really struggle when they, and and like you said, the pay is not, not very well. Very very low pay. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's one thing about being an umpire that impressed me early on when I began to think about this route that you're you're mentioning that they they took is the loneliness that there can be. You know, if you're on a major league ball team, there's 25 players on the team. Maybe when the rosters expand a few more, there's coaches, there's support staff. You might even have an interpreter. You might have, uh, you know, media people around. The umpires, there's a group of four of them, and that's it. And, I mean, if you didn't like one of them, that's, you know, maybe you can transfer or something. But they, they, uh, they have a real fraternity Really, but they're they're off on their own. They don't come in for a ten game homestand. They're in for three or four games, and that's it. Then it's on to the next city, and they got to make their own travel arrangements. They don't have a charter flight waiting for them the way a major league baseball team does. They've got to get to the airport and get their flight, and they got to book their own hotels. I mean, it's it's and they're away from family. Just they've got a vacation exactly. plan these days, but where they got a certain number of weeks off during the course of the season which gives the other guys a chance to, to work in there too. But it's a kind of lonely existence. They're not lionized by the media. They don't, they're not out doing endorsement deals. You don't see umpires, you know, selling state farm insurance or something like that. Right. <laughs> but the, the guys in the minor leagues, they have, they're not, they're not in groups of four. There's like maybe two umpires for a low minor league game, right? Yeah, two, yeah. And then maybe three on a level up. As you work your way up, yeah. Start with maybe a two-man career and then up to three and then eventually four. I guess and, that, and like you said, that they might have to just rent their own cars. They had a couple of incidents that happened at some of the hotels they stayed at, and now it's a kind of a rule they have to have. They have to be in a hotel that you can only get to from the inside because there are a couple of them. I guess they walked out into the parking lot from their room and somebody jumped them. You know, they're not staying at the best hotels. Sure. Or, or that was somebody who who lost money on a game and said, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's actually one of the funny stories that I came across in the book is that because they do seem anonymous. I mean, you, you wouldn't recognize most of them out of uniform. Two or three of them, you might, if you're in context. But uh, one of them told me a story about he went with another umpire that got into an elevator after a game. I, I'm thinking Cubs fans or something, but there was fans of a specific team that were on the elevator with them. And the fans didn't know that these were umpires. And so one of them just started fooling around. He started talking to the fans and said, boy, that umpire at second base, he was <laughs> really bad tonight, don't you think? And one of the fans said, yeah, he was really bad. And the guy said, boy, if I, if I ever saw that guy, I'd just clock him. And the fans said, yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, the, his friend, the other umpire, saying, don't say that, you know. But they never recognized him. They were just goofing on the fans. Sure. Bill, let, let's go back in time. Yeah, uh, there was years ago when you when you had the likes of Billy Martin, Earl Weaver, Lou Pinella. Through the years that you know we've had other uh, managers, but they were especially known for their abuse of umpires. They were known for the the typical video was of them kicking dirt yeah. on the umpire. As a matter of fact, uh, I think I remember um, 
beer commercials may have been Bud Light or something with with the umpires in in the bar or something. And they would they would actually make fun of that, that that would happen. And these managers actually became famous. Their abuse of umpires almost, you know, it became typical for one of them to go out there and that kick the dirt on them and stuff. That's changed, I think. You know, you still have umpires getting abuse, but well, any, not, not, any, not was, as much. Right. Was there was there any uh, was there any talk about that? You know, how umpires used to be abused and. Yeah, I mean, I, I most of them didn't use the word abuse. I think they knew that there was showmanship involved there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was umpires. I, I mean, managers looking to stand up for their players, but sometimes putting on a show. I remember years ago, maybe twenty years ago reading Ron, Ron, Ron Luciano's book. He wrote a couple of books. And he he said sometimes um, the manager would come out there and wave their hands and say, you gotta got to put on a big show here. I, I got to look like I'm really angry with you. I know you made the right call, but, I, you know. <laughs> and so sometimes it was a show. But then Earl Weaver, I think, was kind of famous for having the bill of his cap poke the nose of the other umpire and get really close to him and peck him and kind of irritate him. So that, that was a little abuse there. But with replay, they don't have that kind of arguments anymore. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I think it's probably better because you get the right call made eventually, or what's probably the right call. Some of them are, you still can't tell with, with the replay, but I'm talking to Jerry Davis's wife, actually, before a game once she said, when replay came in, she thought it was going to take the fun out of the game. She enjoyed this is the umpire's wife enjoyed <laughs> that aspect of seeing you know, the umpires get into it now and again. And she was right. That, that's the first thing I thought was that we're not going to have any good arguments anymore. And we tend not to have as good arguments. Yep, absolutely. So how difficult is it to be a major league umpire, to become, they, they like you, you talked about their family. It is, there's so many umpires that are coming out of the umpire school and, and you have like a funnel, only a few get to the top. Yeah. The struggle is what, is, like you said, eight, 10 years. Yep. And great, and as I said, graded every step of the way. Right now, let's get into that grading thing because you said in the minor leagues they're graded, and as they go up, and even when they're in the major leagues, they're graded every game. Where I, when I go to games, I usually sit near one of the umpires' observers, and he's grading major league umpires on their. I mean, they're not going to lose their jobs really unless they do something really bad that would end up being on television or something. But there's just there keeping an eye and giving them feedback. They look to see whether they hustle well enough. They look to see whether they're in what looks to be a good position. Their general demeanor on the field, do they have they controlled the game? Have they kept it moving along within reason? They grade them on all kinds of dimensions. And uh, it's, it's, I don't know, it could be kind of tough. You think somebody looking over your shoulder time as you work your way up. But it's a weeding out process, and, and most of them don't make it. You know, you go to umpire school, that they always say that in a typical class of umpire school, there might be 100 people, 150 people even that start out the year, and they tell you only two or three of you are probably ever going to make it all the way to the major leagues. Not right. that they all want to. I mean, some of them even told me they went to umpire school not even knowing that, was, that they could make it to the major leagues. They went for on a dare, one of them told me. Friendly. Right. You know, just different reasons. But they thought maybe they'd work college ball or something of that sort. They didn't know you could actually make the major leagues. There were, what, two or three uh, up high schools left, right? I know there's the Wendell Stats School. 
Yeah. And there's, I've got the other names, but they're... That's the main one. I think there's two of them now. The, the one I visited, I went for three days, was the Wendelstead School in, in Florida. And that impressed me, too, to just to see how hard they work and how they're not there just to have fun. They want to try to graduate the school, and it costs a few thousand dollars. I don't know how much it costs. I don't remember. We are uh, talking with Bill Nolan, author of Working a Perfect Game. Bill, instant replay, which is, you know, fairly new. What's their, uh, the umpires, do they like having instant replay or not? I think most of them, I'm speculating a little bit here, but, you know, through conversation, I think most of them were apprehensive of it at first because it's just one more thing of somebody looking over your shoulder. And, uh, I mean, there was, boy, there was a game. I didn't see the game. I I went to London to see the Red Sox play the Yankees back in the summer of, uh, what, 2019. And during the Sabre convention, which is in San Diego, there was one umpire that got overruled three times. And each time he lost on replay in the same game. And, you know, he's a veteran umpire and uh, he wasn't going to lose his job or anything. But how humiliating to have it happen three times in a game. Uh, But they got the call right. And I think most umpires, what they fear is the Jim Joyce experience where he umpired a game that would have been a perfect game, except Mm -hmm. he called the runner safe on the 27th out. And the runner was, in fact, out. He recognized it within 45 seconds of seeing it on a television replay after the game. The next batter was out anyhow. Uh, So, you know, it was a no-hitter. But it wasn't a perfect game, which is so much rarer. I thought that commissioner should have gone back and just said, Listen, everybody saw it. It was a perfect game. The umpire just made the wrong call. The pitcher pitched a perfect game. I thought the commissioner should have done that, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. But Jim Joyce, for the rest of his life, has to go along knowing that his mistaken call, good faith call, but errant call cost a guy, a young player, right to have a perfect game on his record forever. The two of them wrote a book together right? called Mm -hmm. Nobody's Perfect. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought that was wonderful that they could reconcile and forgive him for making one mistake. Sure. With, with, with the replay, though, they're, they're being looked at as microscopic evidence. That's really hard for the human eye, eye to see. I mean, with all the dirt coming up and, and stuff around the bases, for example, a stolen base at second base, which I know is rare, rare these days because that's not happening, not a lot of stolen bases now. But, you know, the, the, the microscopic evidence that they need to turn that over, I mean, is that really necessary? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's probably better. I think it gives fans, it, it does relieve somebody of that problem, the Jim Joyce problem, I said. Uh, it, it puts it on the machine rather than the, than the human being. I'd re- I like the human side better. I don't really want to see robo-umps making balls and strike calls. Uh, I'd like to see the games work a lot faster, but so would every umpire. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so would most of the players, I think. It's, uh, I don't know, we need a strong human element in the game. We need to have action. We need to have excitement. But I think it it threatens some of those things to go too far down the technology route. It's right. kind of a balance. And just one, one last thing on a replay before uh, we yep. move on. When they put the headsets on, and I found this fascinating in your book, they're, they're just waiting for an answer. They're not talking to anybody. They're, they're just waiting for an answer. 
Yeah. What's the process? Tell everybody how the process works. Yeah, there's a place in New York called the Replay Operations Center. I went down and visited it. I couldn't do it during games, but I went in a few hours before a game to see how it worked. They have all kinds of technicians down there, 30 screens up on the walls and uh, some supervisors in there. When they pretty much know before they even, I mean, they're all watching the games, uh, the umpires that are working in replay. So they can see when there's a close call and they're anticipating. They've already, the technician is already getting re- ready to re- rewind some of the tape. And if the umpire, if the manager calls for a replay and the umpires gather, they're pretty much ready. But the umpires put on the headset, they have conversation with the place in New York, but really they're listening while people in New York are discussing it. They never have, a, the replay umpire in New York doesn't ever say, well, what did you see, Jim? Or, you know, what did you see, Jeff? They don't have that conversation. It's just, they they sit there waiting. Right. A little nervously, just waiting to hear what the call is going to be. And it's, you know, typically might be 40 seconds or so. And it's not usually much more than a minute. If it drags on past a minute, people are like, okay, they must be seeing this from six different angles. And, right. And they're having a discussion in New York. They can he- hear maybe some of the discussion of the people in New York, but they don't say anything. The field umpires don't say anything. They just get the call. You know, it's overturned, play stands, or, uh, you know, whatever. They got the three choices that it could be. But You know, it's interesting with replay. This isn't anything to do with the umpires. I'm going to ask you guys if I'm remembering this correctly. When replay first came into baseball, and every you know we, you heard arguments for and against it, but I remember it was really meant to be for balls that were over the wall, you know, home run balls. That's what it right? was at first. Yeah, and it's greatly expanded, but that wasn't originally the intent. Was just the home run ball. Right. Yeah, that's how it started. Was just was it a home run or was it not a home run? Yeah, that's what I thought. And that's all. I mean, it couldn't yeah. be any simpler than that. But now it's any play that, as you know, that a manager sure they can't just call every play, but they have a limited number of uh, challenges. Like one, if they get it wrong, if they get it right, they get another one. Now the other thing is hear about like when when the teams have travel days that umpires. You know, whether it's true or not, they call it a little differently because, you know, everybody wants to get out of there. You know, they got planes to catch. They've got to, each team has to get to a different city. And I'm just wondering with like the game we were talking about, if an umpire knows that there's a no hitter happening or a perfect game, I wonder if as the game, and in this case it wasn't because he called the play, he called them safe when he was out. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if an umpire, is fully aware of what's happening if it's a whether it's a perfect game or you know a no hitter or whatever and maybe starts to call the game a little differently i don't know and and this is and of course you're not going to get an umpire to admit this in an interview but i'm just it's your opinion you think there there are umpires that will do that yeah i mean nobody would ever say Oh yeah, I just make up calls to speed the game along. I call everybody out, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, there's a limit to what you can actually do that way. Right. But I mean, they can move the game along by telling the batter to get back in the batter's box and uh, so forth. I, I don't think that happens that much. I think the uh, thing that impressed me is almost the opposite: is that I I always before I'd interview somebody, I did a little homework on them, and so one of the things I always look to see is who they'd ejected over the course of their career, because that kind of gave it something to talk about. But also, you know, did they ever work a no-hitter? 
And so I'd always say, you know, ask them about the, the no hitter. And more often than not, they didn't know there was a no hitter going until at least the fifth or the sixth inning. I mean, you know, their, their job is pitch by pitch. I'm thinking mostly of the plate umpires. Uh, they've got to focus on every single pitch and they've got to get the call as right as they can. So they're not necessarily gazing up at the scoreboard. They happen to notice how many runs or hits or errors there are. Uh, sometimes an hour after the game, if you ask them what the final score was, they could tell you who won, but they couldn't necessarily tell you what the score was because it really didn't matter to them. They have to call safe or out, fair or foul, you know, strike or strike or ball if it's the, if it's the plate umpire. And there's some of them that said they just, you know, run the eighth inning, they Got all the sense of the fans are going wild. What is this all about? And they just glance up at the scoreboard. Oh, now I get it. Mm-hmm. And it's an honor to work a perfect game or a, a no hitter. It's a it's an extra responsibility, and they they rise to that occasion. Who who knows if they uh, might speed a game along one way or another? That, but nobody would ever admit it, like you said. Some of the other fascinating things I found out in your in your book was these umpires would make plane reservations for different airlines and hotels, different hotels. Because, like you said, you don't know if a game's going to run long. They might miss a flight they, or, or whatever. Yeah. They have all these different... Let's say they're working a Friday, Saturday, Sunday series. Uh, and if it's a Sunday night game, they're going to have the day off the next day. So that's not as much of a concern. But if it's a Sunday day game, they might be expected to be... Maybe they're working a the game in Boston. They might be expected to be in Chicago for a night game on Monday night. Well, okay, that's not so bad because between Boston and Chicago... There are some airlines that, at least before COVID, flew every hour. I don't know what the schedules are now. I haven't been on a plane for a long time. They make five or six reservations, maybe, if there are flights available, just because they want to make the first one that they can. And they also book more than one hotel room. Uh, they're not getting these uh, kind of flight reservations that you or I might make to save some money. Right. They're paying full fares so they can cancel without a penalty. They're just, you know... They don't have a booking agency working for them. They do it themselves. On a given crew of four, one of them might be going on vacation. And so it might be only three of them. They, you know, they just, it's all these permutations that are going on. But they, they have to book a lot of, they have to keep a lot of options open. Right. We, never see, we never have seen a game that the umpires simply didn't show up at. Right. <laughs> one way or another, they get there. Or they bring in another crew. I, I suppose it happens extremely rarely. But, you know, they look at the schedule. If you're flying from a place where there, let's pick two cities where there might not be a lot of transportation between them, they'll have make sure that the crews working that have an extra day. They, they'll route the crews to, to do that. So if they're flying out of, like, maybe Seattle, there might not be as many flights to as many cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, you would have, say, from New York to Chicago or something like that. And Seattle is the furthest city, yeah. uh, major city. I mean, just the, from Seattle to Oakland is just like it's a, it's a long flight. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, that's a trip. <laughs> At least it's in the same time zone. Exactly. Yeah. Bill, no, it's, it's a tough life in, in some ways and, and with only themselves to, to deal with this. Bill, we, there are umpires though, that are in the Hall of Fame. What- My memory is that the, I don't remember how many. There's more or less 10 of them, 9 to 13, someplace in there. I know in Fenway Park, in the umpire's room, they have a photograph on the wall of each of the major league umpires in the Hall of Fame. And one time I was in there and I said, wait a minute, this one guy's missing here. And yeah, he had just been put in and 
2013 and here it was 2015 and they hadn't got his picture up yet. So next mm-hmm. time I came in there, there it was though. I wonder what it is that, why, why an umpire gets in the hall of fame. Is it number of games? Is, I mean, it, reputation in the game. Um, umpires have different reputations for sure. I mean, you, you know that as fans. So you can look at, there's two or three umpires that are pretty well-known figures one way or another. Some of them have reputations that maybe they don't quite deserve. Uh, um, fans like to criticize umpires, but they get them from somewhere, uh, these reputations. Uh, and I, some umpires have just stood out. Certainly longevity is part of it. You know, if you've worked 2,000 games, that that's an awful lot of games. But I mean, look at an umpire, Joe West, when he finishes his career, he's not far. He's got something like 80 games to go to become the umpire that worked more games than any other umpire ever. He'll make it this year if we get in a full year. Will he get in the Hall of Fame for that reason? No. Uh, but who knows what other considerations there might be. They're, they're not, I mean, people get in the Hall of Fame in different ways. There are veterans committees. There's other kinds of committees. It's not just pure vote of the uh, the sports writers. Right. If they had an entertainment an entertainer for an umpire, Ronald Seattle would be the one. I remember yeah. him going up. He was, he was entertaining. <laughs> he was. He, he, uh, and some of the umpires, uh, they're not encouraged to have a lot of interaction with fans and so forth. But it's every once in a while, some of them says, have told me that they'll go and just chat with the fans just for a moment, just to sort of leave the fans knowing that, that they're human. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they might just pick up something from one of the, the fans and, and you know, hand them a, ball, a foul ball or something like that. Right. What was the most interesting thing or what was something that you were totally surprised about when interviewing these these umpires uh, that you never you never would have imagined, or is there anything? I and it's just so many things in one way. I just I the kind of backgrounds that they they all come from different backgrounds. And one of the things I always ask them is, "What do you think you would have done if you hadn't gone into umpiring?" And uh, Trip Gibson had been an art teacher beforehand. He said uh, he has a, his college degree is in printmaking. He probably would be a teacher or making artistic prints. Dan Bellino has a law degree. Uh, he, he works in real estate law in the off season. So he would, uh, you know, doing that more fully, I guess. Tom Hallion has, works as a broker in the off season. Ed Hickox is a, is a policeman, as not uncommon among, I mean, they are kind of like law enforcement people in, in some regards. So several of them would have had uh, that kind of a uh, Thing. Will Little was on his way to medical school when he got sidetracked and, and became an umpire. The guy that impressed me the most, I think, was Ted Barrett, his varied backgrounds. He, it turned out, you know, I was having a conversation with him, and then I learned a little more afterwards. I didn't do as much work preparing for him beforehand as I should have, and so I went back and talked to him the next day. He had been, first of all, a sparring partner for three or four or five heavyweight boxing champions. Mike Tyson, for instance, Evander Holyfield. You don't get to be a sparring partner. You or I wouldn't be, and first of all, I don't think we'd want to be a sparring partner. <laughs> it was well paid. But I mean, you got to be able to put up a good fight without hurting the guy. I mean, you know, but you've got to put up a good fight to be worthwhile. Not only was that, but he's an ordained minister with a, with a doctorate 
So he's actually Reverend Ted Barrett. He went to theological school and he's, uh, he's an ordained minister. So here's this guy that, and he's a major league umpire, <laughs> you know. Uh, his son is, uh, was in nuclear weapons maintenance for the Air Force and now he's working double A in 2019. He had this last year off because the, there just wasn't any minor league action this time. But just a fascinating group of people with from all kinds of backgrounds that have somehow ended up with this game that we all love and they're, they're working in it and uh, an essential part of the game, but a game, a part of the game that doesn't get recognized that much. Right. And, and now with the focus on diversity in, in baseball, we have a female general manager. We have a couple of females coaches is how long it will be before we see a female umpire. They have one in the NFL. They're, they do. And I, I've seen her work and I, I, uh, Baseball is the only sport I really follow, but you can't help but see her blonde ponytail. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and knowing there's a woman, I mean, it could be a guy. But uh, right. there have been female umpires that have made it up to a certain level, but never quite made it all the way. And there are a couple that are coming along that hope to make it. With this, the Sabre book that we did, we interviewed a uh, umpire in Cuba who is a major league umpire in the Cuban major league, Janet Moreno. In Canada, I believe they're in the in Canadian baseball. I believe there's a one or two women at the very highest level. Now, they want to have a woman come along, but they're just not going to promote somebody that first. I mean, it's a struggle. The eight to ten years and so forth, and you've got to make the grade too. They're not going to put somebody in there that isn't up to standard. But uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the executives in New York told me that he's he's on the lookout. He really wants to encourage. And it'll make his day when finally someone, uh, one of them gets there. Sure. Sure. Now, what I, I touched on roll up, call up, umpire, roll up, roll up umpires earlier uh, yeah. and their role. They, they come up for a vacation umpire. They stay, they stay a couple of days. Maybe the whole crew goes on vacation one after another. They stay. And you said a couple of them work over a thousand games before being actually hired. Now they're getting paid. I guess, major league rate at that point. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, the major league umpire makes several hundred thousand dollars a year and they work. So basically they're making, you know, a few thousand dollars a game. A minor league umpire might be making 15, $20,000 a season. Uh, and they, they have to work other kinds of stuff. So if they get a call up to work a three game series and they're making $9,000, let's say, uh, I mean, that's great. That's tremendous. It's an exciting call to get. It helps them get through those final years. It, it, it becomes a financial transition in a sense. Uh, they tend to even work, some of them make more money as a co-op umpire than the very first year that they're a major league umpire because they work them harder. They might work 140 games, whereas by the time they're on the major league staff, they're only going to work 120 or so games. So they might actually make a little more money. Interesting. Uh, but there's the tenure involved and the honor. I mean, the, the, just the day you get that phone call, uh, from New York saying you've been, we're adding you to the major league staff. I mean, that's what these guys have been waiting so many years, sacrificing so much to get there. And usually they guys in New York try to play a joke on them of some kind. Right. Right. <laughs> and then they'll let in on the fact that they're calling them because they're, they're getting hired. But I, I mean, I talked to one guy, John Tumpain. I happened to be at Fenway and I had heard from the umpire observer up in the press box. He had told me that he'd gotten hired. And I said, oh, I got to go down and talk to him. And so I was waiting for him when he came into the park. 
this was uh, two hours beforehand. This guy told me that he'd gotten hired that afternoon. And so I, when John came into the park, I said, hey, I heard you got a nice phone call today. And, you know, he practically broke down crying. I mean, he just said it's the greatest day of his life. He'd been working at it for X number of years. You know, he finally made it. It's actually kind of, he's got an interesting story too. He made the news a, a year or so later, I think he was, a, I think it was in Pittsburgh. He talked a woman off a bridge. You know, there's a bridge right, right. by the ballpark in Pittsburgh. She was thinking about jumping off the bridge and he managed to talk her down. Wow. One of the umpires you spoke to, actually the first one you spoke to, and in, it's in, in the book, is Phil Cousy. And I like his story, how he got in, happened to be in a hotel where the president of the National League was staying. Could you tell that story? Yeah. Phil's father was a sheet metal worker. So he came from a kind of working class background, as many of these guys did. He figured he'd probably go into the same kind of thing. But then he became an art teacher, like Trip Gibson, you know, he was an art teacher, and uh, but he wanted to be an umpire. He had gone to uh, Yankee Stadium, and they started watching. He was talking to some of his friends. They're watching the umpires, and they said that's kind of a cool thing to do. And uh, he, you know, they he found out about there was such a thing as umpire school, and he he went. He didn't make it the first time. He didn't graduate from umpire school. He didn't make the grade. He went back again. Didn't make. He he went to a different school. Didn't make the grade. He had to go three times perseverance for, I mean, you, most people would get discouraged after the first yeah. time or the second time, but he, he went through it. He got hired. And then along came the strike uh, back at the end of the last century there, where it was a mass resignation and a whole bunch of umpires quit all at once. He had just gotten there and just begun to make it. And then because his father was a union man and he believed in the, the union, he, uh, he resigned also. And they, accepted his resignation. So he was out. But he uh, he got a job. His sister, I think it was, worked at a hotel. I can't remember which brand it was, a hotel. I, I won't call it a brand name, but he one of the chain hotels. And uh, he got a job working there. And then at some point, somebody told him that, hey, you know, uh, Len Coleman is, in t- is he's staying at the hotel. And uh, he said, I think he's a National League umpire president or something. He was the president of the National League. So Phil decided he was going to write him a note and tell him about how he'd been trying and trying and trying. And he he went up and he was going to knock on the door, but it was too late at night. He stuck a note under the door and told his story. He'd, he'd written it out. Uh, and then he went up the very next morning. He wanted to get there real early before he could Coleman could possibly have left the room. He said, has he left the room yet? No, he hasn't checked out yet. And uh, he basically, he waylaid him. <laughs> and, he, and he said, listen, Mr. Coleman, I'm Phil Cousy. And he said, I know who you are. I've got your note. You know, he actually read the note. And they had a conversation in the elevator going down as Coleman was leaving. And uh, he just he couldn't stop talking, Phil. And uh, Coleman said, calm down, calm down. You know, I'll call you. It's I, I really like your uh, dedication. I, I see how much you care. We'll, uh, um, when there's an opening, you know, I'll let you know. And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, no, no, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. And he did. You know, he, he gave him a call. He just was impressed by uh, how much this young, younger guy uh, cared. And uh, instead of just blowing him off, he, he gave him a call. And he said, you're going to have to start at the bottom, which he did. He went back, right back down to the bottom. And, but he came up quicker that time. He maybe, I think he put in another three years or so. Double A and uh, single A, double A and triple A, and then then finally made it. And now he's now he's there. And, yeah, and, and the empires are such a small fraternity. There's some other 
actually related. The wealthy and the Kellogg family, they they married each other's sister, I guess. One married the, the sister. Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, Bill Welke and Tim Welke both were umpires, and that's fair right. enough. You don't get to be an umpire because your name's Welke, and the, it probably it was probably more difficult, I would think. Uh, Tim is the older one; he's about ten years older than Bill Welke, and I imagine that in some ways Bill Welke had a harder time because people would think he might be trying to come in on his brother's coattails or something like that. I, I you know, you got to make the grade. But then as it happens, Bill married Jeff Kellogg's sister, Terry. And so we're in this situation for, I mean, there two of them are retired now. Uh, Jeff's going to be a supervisor, I think, uh, this, this year. Three umpires from Coldwater, Michigan, which is a town I've never even heard of before. It's a pr- relatively small town, but they have three of 76. I mean, we've got umpires from Venezuela, got umpires from... Uh, you know, all over the world, but then three of them from Coldwater, Michigan. <laughs> and, you know, Hunter Wendelstedt that runs the uh, the school, the Wendelstedt School, his father was Harry Wendelstedt. Yeah. Tom Gorman uh, was the father of Brian Gorman, uh, the the umpire that's currently there. Uh, Mike DeMuro, his father was Lou DeMuro. Before mm-hmm. him, there have been connections like that. Jim Wolf uh, is a major umpire. His brother, Randy, was I remember that, yeah. They wouldn't let him work the played during games that Randy was pitching right. for obvious reasons. It just wouldn't look good. Right. <laughs> he wouldn't want to be there either. But so there, there, there is a, the possibility of a family connection, but, but you're not going to make it because you know somebody, not right. with that kind of scrutiny. And the media would be all over it. People that uh, just a suspicion of it wouldn't look good. That's Bill, the same reason they don't work a whole homestand because it just wouldn't look good for them to be right. staying in say, Kansas City for 10 days in a row. They could become friendly. They try to stay at different hotels, anything they do to stay away from the players. And Bill, these these umpires, they do suffer injuries. They do. Yeah, and what's in, in what, that's one thing that impressed me about Major League Baseball in this is just the last two decades or so after that strike and they, they got things going again. They are, there's a lot of support now for umpires, medical staff, uh, they work with the medical staff of the, you know, if you get hit by a, a foul ball off a bat, hits you in the mask or something like that as a plate umpire, the uh, trainers will come out, maybe from both teams, but at least from the home team will come out and and they'll get, go take you through a concussion protocol. They might take you off the field for the rest of that game and, and work with a three-man crew. But they they're very cautious about that. They also have psychological counseling, too. I mentioned Ted Barrett. His doctorate degree, his dissertation, was on the stresses, mental and, and physical stresses, but mainly the mental challenges that umpires face, the loneliness, fear of substance abuse that has been a problem for players as well as managers and many of the rest of us, too. That can be aggravated if you're sitting in a hotel room you know, in a city far away from home, you haven't seen your family for a month, two months maybe, uh, as you're uh, going around there, the stresses are, are can be considerable. He wrote a whole dissertation on that. Bill, did you find they were very willing to speak to you or did you kind of have to pull teeth a little bit? Um, that's a good question. I It was much easier than I expected. I, I think they, with coming and going over the five years, I don't know how many umpires there were total. I interviewed 72 
And I told you there were 76. Mm. But over the course of time, and there's about five or six guys that chose not to talk for one reason or another, that were already major league umpires. When you're a call-up umpire and you haven't been made it yet, some of those guys didn't want to talk because they were afraid maybe that I might put something in a newspaper that would backfire against them. I wasn't a reporter and I, you know, the book was going to take a couple of years to wrap up or whatever. But I told them the minute they showed any hesitancy, I said, don't jinx yourself. Don't, you know, I understand completely. I don't want to do a single thing that would jeopardize you having a chance to make it. But then there were guys that had made it and they just didn't want to talk for one reason or another. That seemed normal to me. I expected more than 50% of them wouldn't want to. I had no idea really what to expect, but I didn't really think they would be as forthcoming as they were. Uh, and yet, almost all of them were happy to. So one guy, uh, Vic Carapaza, his father had been, his father-in-law was Richie Garcia, who was a longtime major league umpire, and he's also one of the union leaders that lost his job at the time. And so I kind of knew it if I wanted to talk to him that I probably he didn't want me asking that much about his father. And the first time he declined. And then the next year he, when he came along, I said, listen, I'd really like to talk to you, Vic. Let me promise you one thing. I won't ask you a single question about your father-in-law. And he said, okay, let's talk. <laughs> and, you know, then he came up, but I, I didn't want to dwell on it. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't want to either. Working a perfect game, conversations with umpires, publisher of summer game books. Where could I happen to have a copy of it here? What it looks like. How, how handy is that? But summer game books, and uh, it, you know, it's on Amazon. And if you can get into a bookstore, you might find it there. But just summer game books, all long one long word. Summergamebooks.com. Buying it direct from the publisher helps them the most. We're also going to give a plug to the Pandemic Baseball Book Club because I see that you're on there yeah. as well. And there's a link to buy the book from there. Yeah, yeah, that would be. They work with some independent bookstores there. Yeah, uh, that I I discovered them at the beginning of the pandemic and was uh, very happy to to join in with them. And they've they've actually joined forces with Saber now, right? Uh, together, which which is really a nice connection. It is. You know, Bill, I mentioned it in the intro. We are always fascinated by just just when you think that there can't be another subject <laughs> that can be written about, something comes out. I mean, we've had we we had a cup of coffee club book, you know, yep. for players that you know have the, the one time up with the team. I mean, we've had uh, you know Ralph Carhart with his uh, hall ball, and I I mean on and on and on we. We're also huge supporters of the Pandemic Book Club. We're very proud to be one of the landing spots for the authors. We, we, we think that you guys are fantastic. We appreciate all you do, uh, you know, the, the authors that come on our show. But what I was going to say is this book, for anyone who loves the game of baseball and just wants to, you know, learn another aspect of the game and doesn't wants to know more about another side of it this book is fascinating this book we're not talking about players i mean players may come up in the book or whatever we're not talking about players we're not talking about management we're not talking about managers we're talking about these people who dedicate themselves to uh this game yes once they become professional major league baseball umpires you know, we'll make some coin, 
but getting there is, is, is a huge struggle. And I just recommend this book for anyone that wants to learn another aspect of the game, that wants to really delve into something. You've really hit on something that, that I find fascinating. So, Bill, I thank you for writing this book um, because you really you opened my eyes. And uh, I don't think I'll ever – I'm not going to watch a game and ignore those guys anymore. <laughs> I, I'm going to look and I'm going to say, hmm, I wonder what I, – I, I might have read about that guy in Bill's book. Yeah, you know? and there's some fun facts also in the book. and because I love these little snippet of fun facts and you have – and you mentioned relatives in the game with Tom Gorman and, and his son, where Tom Gordon worked the first game at Chase Stadium and his son worked the last game at Chase Stadium. That's just fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, I had no idea what I was getting into, and uh, it just opened up all these extra ways of appreciating the game. To me, I, I've talked to broadcasters. I've talked to a bunch of ballplayers. I did a whole book on the people that work around the ballpark, from the ushers to ticket takers to... Uh, you know, the organist. And I, I just, I don't know, I grew up loving baseball and just look at it from every angle I can. We, we, I just announced a new book today, in fact, a Sabre book on one win wonders. People that won one major league game and only one. Some of them are pitchers. One of them is one in 10. He won one game, lost 10 games, and that was the end of his career. But uh, uh, there was, I mean, there's one guy that was a catcher and he just put him in as a position player at the end of a game and the team came from behind and won the game. <laughs> if you want to know anything about the Boston Red Sox, Bill Nolan is the man to go see and read. He has uh, dozens of books on the Red Sox. Yeah, that's my team. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. I enjoyed Bill. it. I, I love talking about this subject and anything to do with baseball. Thank you for the invitation. Thank, thank you very, very much for coming on with us. Well, I want to thank Bill, and I want to thank Jeff, you old coot. <laughs> and, uh, uh, a no, badge that, I wear proudly. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> Stephen Reichlin, Bill Nolan, episode 99. And let's even say that we started the show with Doug Shiding introducing the show. Then we had Gary Mack. I mean, we might as well just drop the mic at episode 99 and end it. (laughs) (laughs) But just really, again, umpires, fascinating. What they go through to get there, really. uh, I love the the fact that um, the one umpire opens Shay, right? Uh, Right. I forget who he said. Um, You would know. I don't remember the name, but. Okay. Right. And then his son. Son closes Shay. Right. Closes Shay. I mean, that's that's something. Things like that are just they're great. All right, Jeff. Ninety nine agent, agent missed it by that much. <laughs> agent ninety nine. <laughs> Bring us home, Len. Bring us home. Max. Uh, right then, she says, Max. <laughs> anyway, it's time. End it, Jeff. You bring us home. Well, it's baseball always brings you home by the musician Dave Dresser. And the poet, Shel Krakowski. Enjoy. Bye.